Good morning again. As always, it is a joy and privilege to be able to proclaim God's Word to you this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word with you, would you open to Matthew chapter 14? Matthew 14, we'll begin in verse 13 this morning. Last week, if you remember, we saw the death of John the Baptist, which we noted was a bit out of the sequence of the chronology of Matthew. The passage today gets us back into sequence. Remember, the last thing that we saw, the last place that we saw Jesus was in his hometown of Nazareth. He was rejected by the people there at the end of chapter 13. Now he will spend the next portion of his ministry on and around the Sea of Galilee. And in the next two weeks, we're going to see two of Jesus' most famous miracles around this sea. The feeding of the 5,000 and his walking on water. And as we look at these miracles, we need to keep in mind the main question, the main point of the entire Gospel of Matthew. Remember Jesus' question to us, who do you say that I am? Matthew wrote this Gospel to tell us who Jesus is and what he came to do. And so every piece of the story fills out that picture for us. The miracles of Jesus do that no less. Today, we're going to talk about the fact that Jesus supplies your every need. He is the only one who can truly satisfy you, both your body and your soul. But before we see that in God's Word, let's go to Him in prayer and ask for His help. Would you all pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we read Your Holy Word, I ask now that You would give us Your spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know and love Your Son, Jesus Christ, more. Open our minds, our hearts, and our wills so that we may hear Your Word and come to Jesus. Speak, Holy Spirit. Your people are listening. Amen. We'll begin in verse 13. Now when Jesus heard this, He withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by Himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. Now he went ashore, or rather, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of, broken, of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. This is the word of the Lord. So we look at this passage this morning, we're going to look at it in three ways. First, we're going to see at the beginning the heart of Jesus for His people. Then we're going to look at the food that He gives to the hungry, that He feeds our bodies And then we're going to look at the meaning that is included in this passage. The fact that Jesus satisfies not just our bodies, but our souls. 
every part of us. But remember, the story begins where we left off last week. We just heard the account of the gruesome murder of John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin and the forerunner of his kingdom. Herod killed John because John courageously called him to the repentance that the gospel demanded. The story today starts off with Jesus' reaction to this news in verse 13. Let's hear it again. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. A desolate place was an unpopulated region. So the added phrase, by himself, shows us why Jesus was going there. To be alone. Likely to be alone with his disciples. I mentioned last week that there are probably two things going on here. One is that Jesus now knows that Herod has heard about him. And Jesus might be trying to get out of the spotlight so that he doesn't experience the same persecution that John did. We shouldn't take this as Jesus being scared of suffering, but rather as him knowing that this is not the right time and circumstances for him to experience the suffering that he ultimately will. But the other reason Jesus would have wanted to get away from everyone is to mourn for the death of John. But the text immediately tells us that whatever Jesus intended, it didn't work out. Instead, he was followed. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. This is one of those places that we need to work hard to remember the orthodox teaching about who Jesus is. He isn't some superman or superhero. He's not just God pretending to be a human. He is the eternal Son of God. But the truth of the incarnation is that he has taken on flesh. He has taken on human nature. He is truly God and truly man. A complete divine nature and a complete human nature joined in one person. The Lord Jesus Christ. The reason why this is important is because we have to put ourselves in Jesus' shoes. The letter to the Hebrews tells us that he was made like his brothers, that's us, in every respect. And that he was one who was in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. So put yourselves in his shoes. You have just received devastating news that brings sorrow, but that also might have implications for you and for your safety. You want to get away probably to do what Jesus often did when he went to desolate places, to rest and to pray to his Father. But just as you are getting to this place of rest, you see huge crowds of people who came to see you. They didn't come to console you or see if you needed help. They came because they want help from you. Like any other human, Jesus is physically tired, emotionally spent, and wants time to be alone. How would you respond to these people in that moment? We're told how Jesus responds. Verse 14 says, When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. He doesn't complain because people won't leave him alone. He doesn't get angry because his rest was interrupted. Instead, he had 
compassion on them. The word that's translated had compassion isn't new to us. We've seen it already when the crowds came to Jesus in Matthew 9. And we'll see it again in his parables and when he heals more who are sick. It's a verb in the Greek. It's not just a static attribute, had compassion. It might be better to think of this reading as his heart went out to them. Literally, his bowels went to them. His guts went to them. The innermost part of his being went toward them. When Jesus sees people in need, when he sees people suffering, especially from sin, his gut reaction is to move toward them. It's to love them. It's to help them. Jesus is overflowing with compassion. And Matthew tells us that it isn't just a feeling. No, it results in help. He had compassion on them and healed their sick. The first thing that hearing that probably does is it challenges us. Jesus is not like us. When we are hurting or sad or tired, we so often let agitation and anger and annoyance be what comes out of us. Jesus felt hurting, sad, and tired just like we do and was tempted to respond in those ways as well. But instead, he responded in love, compassion, and mercy. This is a challenge to us. When you are tired from a long day and your spouse needs your attention or your neighbor wants to chat, or you've just finished putting your kids to bed and they get back up because they had a bad dream. Or, in the midst of your own pain, someone else wants to tell you about what's going on in their life. In those moments, you respond like Jesus. You respond with love and compassion and grace toward those in need. So Jesus' response is a challenge to us but it is also a comfort to us. Jesus is not like us. Our patience wears thin. Our tolerance has limits. Jesus' love and compassion and patience are unlimited. They are infinite toward us. When you are in need or distressed or troubled, are you prone to think that Jesus is getting fed up with you? Do you wonder if his forgiveness has finally run out? Or if he's done being compassionate with you this time around? He isn't. His patience will never run out on you. His very character is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Do not hesitate to come to Jesus when you are in need. He is full of compassion. He will always receive those who draw near to the throne of grace for help. That's the response that we see from Jesus in general to these crowds. But Matthew then turns in verse 15 to focus in on a specific need that arises. Verse 15 says, Now when it was evening... The disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. In verse 13, the fact that it was a desolate place focused on the fact 
that it was unpopulated, that there were no people there. But now the disciples focus on the fact that there isn't any food there. Those two things often go together. The word translated desolate place is the same word translated wilderness or desert elsewhere. It's possible to detect a little bit of agitation in the disciples' statement. Maybe they didn't share the same patience and compassion that Jesus had. If that's the case, they may be saying something like, all right, Jesus, you help these people, now get them out of here so we can finally be alone. They've identified something that really can't be fixed. The last verse of the passage tells us that there were 5,000 men present besides women and children, which likely means that there are at least 10 to 12,000 people in this crowd around Jesus. The disciples know that there is no way they can feed that many people, especially in a barren wilderness. All of this makes Jesus' response seem like sarcasm or a hollow joke. In verse 16, it says, But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. What happens next is rightly identified as a miracle. Let's read the rest of the passage to see what Jesus does. Beginning in verse 18. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. There have been some attempts to explain away this miraculous event. Maybe what Jesus did is he gave everyone present a really small piece of the bread and the fish. And so everyone was miraculously content with the little bit that they had. But Matthew explicitly says that they collected 12 baskets full of broken pieces after everyone ate. He also says that everyone was satisfied, which we should take at face value. Their bellies were full. Some modern commentators say that the real miracle was that Jesus encouraged everyone present to share the food that they had with each other. So the real miracle is unselfishness and sharing of resources. But everything in this text assumes, everything in this text rather suggests that the only food used is the five loaves of bread and two fish. No, this is not some trick by Jesus or a moral miracle. This is a real miracle. Jesus did something that was impossible. He took five loaves of bread, probably round, flat discs like our pita bread, and two fish, and fed over 5,000 people with them until they were full. This is what we call a miracle. A miracle is when there is no natural explanation for an event. It's when the ordinary laws that God created to function in this world are suspended. They aren't illusions or tricks of the mind. 
They are God supernaturally intervening in the normal events of the world. Water in a sea parts and becomes walls of water on both sides, and the people of Israel walk through, not on swampy terrain, but on dry ground. A little bit of flour in a jar and a little bit of oil in a jug don't run out for three years for the widow of Zarephath. We're going to see a miracle next week when Jesus walks on water on the Sea of Galilee, suspending the normal laws of gravity or density or surface tension. All of these things seem incredible. But the first thing we learn in the Bible is that God created this world and everything in it, including the laws that govern it. And so he has the freedom and the power to suspend and work outside of those laws. Miracles are only unbelievable to someone who doesn't believe in a God who created the world and has absolute power over it. Matthew clearly portrays this event as a miracle. Jesus has somehow turned five loaves of bread and two fish into thousands of each. But what does it mean? What are we supposed to learn from this miracle? Remember, miracles are never arbitrary. They aren't parlor tricks or things done just to impress people. The whole gospel of Matthew is given to show us who Jesus truly is and what it is that he came to do. And each of his miracles teaches us something about those two things, who Jesus is and what he came to do. The first thing we should learn from every miracle is the power, control, and authority that Jesus has over this world. We talked a moment ago about how Jesus is fully human with all the emotions and limits of humans. But we see here that he is also fully God. He isn't just subject to the world around him, but he controls the world around him and does whatever he pleases with it. Jesus is the Son of God who upholds the whole universe by the word of his power. But the miracle isn't just a demonstration of Jesus' power. He doesn't turn five rocks into a thousand rocks or five sticks into a thousand sticks. He does it with bread and fish, with food. He does this miracle to fulfill the needs of the people who are right in front of him. Just as he healed the sicknesses out of compassion in verse 14, we should see this as an extension of that compassion. Jesus sees a needy and hungry people and he uses his power to feed them. Notice that this is a similar miracle to the one that Satan tempted Jesus to perform in Matthew chapter 4. There, though, the miracle would have been to satisfy his own hunger. Here, He does it to satisfy the hunger of others. And this teaches us something also about Jesus' character and his care for his people. We often talk about how miracles are physical miracles that demonstrate both physical and spiritual power. Remember the paralyzed man in Matthew chapter 9. Jesus calls him to walk to show that he has the power and authority to also forgive the man's sins. But what we need to remember is that we shouldn't discard the physical element of the miracle to get to the more true spiritual reality behind it. 
No, it is a real physical miracle. We're going to see that Jesus satisfies our spiritual hunger, but that doesn't mean that he doesn't also satisfy our physical hunger too. These people were really physically hungry, and Jesus gave them actual food for their bellies. So much so that Matthew can say in verse 20 that they all were satisfied. Jesus does not discount the fact that you have physical needs. He doesn't consider those unimportant. He made your body to need food. This is one of the lines that Jesus teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. We shouldn't immediately spiritualize that. Jesus cares for your physical needs. If you are sick, if you are tired, if you are lonely, if you are suffering, if you are in financial difficulties, Jesus cares about those needs. One of the things that this story is likely looking back to is the wilderness wanderings of the people of Israel. When they're in the wilderness, you'll remember, right after they leave Egypt, they begin complaining that they don't have anything to eat, and they say that God has brought them out of slavery in Egypt to kill them in the wilderness. Do you remember what God does for them? He causes manna, which is a bread-like substance, to fall from the sky and to feed them every day other than the Sabbath day for 40 years. God cares about your physical needs. Psalm 78 is a psalm that looks back on that wilderness experience and it shows the Israelites' skepticism of God and His promises. It says in verse 19, They spoke against God saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? This is said of the people who just walked through on dry ground the Red Sea. Can God spread a table in the wilderness? And the answer that they received every day for 40 years is yes. God can spread a table in the wilderness. He can take care of your needs even when it seems like there is no way He will. He can sustain you even when you are in impossible circumstances. That doesn't mean He will give you everything you want. It doesn't mean that you will never be uncomfortable or never suffer. But it does mean that you are in the care of your heavenly Father. And not a hair can fall from your head apart from His fatherly will. Jesus cares for your physical needs. But caring for physical needs is not all that is going on here. Matthew is the shortest of the four accounts of Jesus feeding the 5,000 in all four Gospels. He gives the least detail. The other Gospels give more detail, but Matthew does give hints that this is not just physical sustaining and satisfaction, but that it is pointing to more. The miracle doesn't just look back to the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings. It also looks forward. Jesus has mentioned already in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew 8, a banquet that the Messiah will give at the end of the age, where all of the saints will gather around a table and be served by Him. This banquet is the same one mentioned in Revelation 19 that we call the Wedding Supper of the Lamb. One of the interesting ways that we see this hinted at here is in verse 19. Jesus commands everyone to sit down on the grass. But the word that is used for sit is not the typical word that he uses for sit. 
It's a particular word that is used for reclining at a banquet table. Jesus is commanding these people to recline and lounge at a feast that he has prepared for them. This miracle is a picture, a foretaste of the messianic banquet at the end of the age. But the main point of the wedding supper of the Lamb isn't that we will get a nice, fancy meal. It's that it is the culmination of God's saving work. He is finally going to bring together His church throughout the ages, and we will all be gathered in His presence without fear or sin or suffering or death. It's that promise that begins at the very beginning of the Bible and runs all the way to Revelation 21 and 22. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. From Adam and Eve's exile from the garden and from the presence of God, this has been the most fundamental need and the most basic longing of humanity. To be in the presence of God, being served and cared for by him. This miracle is a foretaste of that banquet. There's another amazing hint that we get in this passage, and it's a future echo of the Lord's Supper. Look at the words that Matthew chooses to use in verse 19 of this passage. It says, Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves, and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Jesus took bread, he blessed it, then he broke it and gave it to his disciples. Those four words in exactly that order is exactly what we see in Matthew 26 at the institution of the Lord's Supper. This is almost certainly not coincidence. As Jesus is miraculously taking care of the physical needs of these people, Matthew is pointing us, the church, forward to the event that will miraculously take care of the spiritual needs of all of God's people, the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is what Jesus came to do. He didn't just come to feed his people. He came to save his people from their sins. And he will ultimately do that in his death. Jesus' death wasn't a normal death. It was a vicarious death. That means that he died in your place. He took your sins upon him and took the punishment that you deserve. But even the sins of every one of his people weren't too much for Jesus to bear. Death couldn't hold him and he rose from the dead to new life. This is the way that God fixes that fundamental problem, the exile of humanity, our alienation from God. Jesus took our sins in his death, and then he gave us new life in his resurrection. That's what the Lord's Supper is all about. We don't believe that we are eating Jesus' physical body and blood in the Lord's Supper. Jesus' physical body and blood is at the right hand of the Father in heaven. But we are spiritually filling ourselves with Jesus. He is the true nourishment that you need. Remember what he said to Satan in the wilderness. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In John's account of the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus makes this hint explicit. 
after feeding them and getting into a debate with the Pharisees about the manna that has come from heaven, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. As Jesus miraculously feeds the hungry bellies of these people in this story, he's giving them a foretaste of the bread that will truly satisfy. Even this bread that we eat in the Lord's Supper is a sign of the true bread of life. We participate in Christ as we eat it, but the bread that we need to have life is Jesus himself. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Just like the paralyzed man in Matthew 9, Jesus shows us here that there is a deeper hunger that he will satisfy the spiritual hunger for communion with God. This is one of the major themes that we've seen in Matthew. Since the fall, we are so prone to let our physical cares and needs overshadow our true spiritual needs. In Matthew 6, Jesus talks about our everyday physical worries, what you will eat or what you will drink or what kind of clothing you will put on. In the parable of the sower, he said that we are tempted to let the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word of God that we so desperately need. What physical needs and cares have been overshadowing your true, deep, spiritual needs in your life? In order to reorient us and to reorient our appetites, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. What do you most hunger and thirst for? You have to eat and you have to drink to live. God gave you a physical body and he created you to need physical nourishment. But you are not just a body. You are also a soul. You have hunger pangs for your soul. Do you long to be satisfied by Jesus, the true bread of life? Do you say with the psalmist, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Do you say with David, My soul shall be satisfied as with rich food as I think about you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the only food that will truly satisfy and will give eternal life. Set your hope and your longings on Him. Come to Him to satisfy your deepest needs. This is what the feeding of the 5,000 points us to. Like all of Jesus' miracles, it isn't arbitrary. It is motivated by His overflowing, compassionate heart toward needy sinners like you and me. It tells us who Jesus is, that he's not just a man, but he is God in the flesh. The one who created the world and who controls even the molecules that make up fish and bread. It teaches us that our God will supply our every need. That he is the one who gives us the food and strength that we need. And it teaches us that there is a bread that isn't just for our body and doesn't simply satisfy our bellies. Jesus is the bread of life. Whoever comes to him shall not hunger, and whoever believes in him shall never thirst. But there's one more thing in this text for us to take note of, to pay attention to. 
Do you notice how the passage ends? It ends in kind of a weird way. We're told that they ate and were satisfied, that they picked up a bunch of leftovers, and then we're told how many people there were. What's strange about this ending is that we don't see any response from the people who were present. You might think that's a bit speculative, and we don't want to make too many arguments from silence, but it is in a gospel that is intent on showing us the response of every person who comes into contact with Jesus, it is shocking that we don't see any response from these people to this incredible miracle of Jesus. What would the proper response to Jesus' work be? At the very least, it would be to say thanks. Jesus just took a bunch of people out in the wilderness with only a few loaves of bread and a couple fish, and he fed them until they were full. We ought to expect them to thank him. This is actually the normal response, not just to Jesus feeding our bellies, but to his entire life, death, and resurrection on our behalf. We are to respond to him with lives of thanksgiving and praise. We are to come to Jesus for life and then respond in worship and gratefulness for the free gift that he gives us. So let us respond rightly to the gift that God has given us in Jesus. Let us not be those who take our fill and then walk away to the next thing. Let's live our lives as a sacrifice of praise to our Savior, who is himself the bread of life. Would you all pray with me? Father, we pray. We pray that you would open our eyes. We pray that you would cause us not to just be in awe of Jesus, not to just be shocked by him, but to see that he has the words of eternal life, that knowing him is eternal life. Father, we pray that we would not just keep Jesus at arm's length, but that we would come to him, that we would believe in him, that we would know him, that we would rest upon him alone for salvation and life. Stir us to that effort, not just today, not just one time in our lives, but every day every moment of every day, that we would cling to Jesus and find our rest in him. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.